Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. most people are brought up to you just got to think positively that's absolutely not true that's completely false because emotions come first before thoughts hey folks this is mark divine with the unbeatable mind podcast thanks so much for your attention today i really appreciate it and as you know we don't take it for granted around here because of all the things vying for your attention and i'm going to make sure that you get a ton of value out of today's show we're going to be talking to Dr. John Sullivan, who is a specialist and expert in uh, brain science and how to create a healthy brain. Um, cool stuff. But before we get started, um, update on my Burpees for Vets challenge. So it's as I'm recording this, it's the end of April. So I'm nearing four months of doing 300 burpees a day on my quest to do 100,000 burpees this year which I'll, I'll definitely nail. I'll knock that out of the park. In fact, I'm targeting about 109,000. At any rate, um, the challenge is to raise awareness and funds for veterans who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. And that my team and I, meaning uh, hopefully some of you listening are part of my team because it's a self-selected group who have decided to jump in with me on this cause. Uh, we've committed to doing 22 million burpees this year. And that number is relevant. That number 22 is relevant because Supposedly, that's how many veterans are committing suicide every day, which is a tragic, just tragic to even think about. So uh, they are suffering. And so we're doing a tiny, tiny bit of suffering to help them out. So if you're interested in supporting us, uh, go to burpeesforvets.com. You can learn more about how you can either organize a team or jump on a team or just pledge, you know, like a, a certain amount of money per burpees for me. So I'm donating 10 cents a burpee, so I'll be putting, you know, a little over 10,000 to this cause. And so far, we've raised, um, we've committed, we've got committed about $160,000, which is tremendous, and uh, close to 10 million of our 22 million burpees. So we still need your help. All right. And then one more public service announcement um, the fifth anniversary edition of The Way of the Seal, my best selling book. I put out with, in partnership with Reader's Digest is coming out on Memorial Day. You can pre-order it already if you go to wayoftheseal.com, uh, wayoftheseal.com, and um, you can pre-order it and also get a free workbook journal that we put together. Anyways, there's information on the website about that. Check that out. I'm excited about that because I've added two new chapters. One is on leading in an accelerated times, in VUCA times, and the other is on building the secrets to building elite teams, and I've added... Uh, key takeaways to every section and completely edited the entire book. So it's going to be great. Uh, so my guest today, back to the show, my guest today is sports scientist and clinical sports psychologist, Dr. John Sullivan. John works with the New England Patriots. You've heard of those guys. 
uh, NBA teams, NCAA teams, Olympians, you know, elite military folks like the SEALs. And he's the co-author of a book called The Brain Always Wins, which focuses on the latest of sports psychology, cognitive science, and neuroscience to help you optimize your brain's performance and your health. So if your brain isn't healthy, then you're not healthy. That's a direct quote from him. And I agree with that. So check this out. This is going to be a great, great episode. And I am super stoked to have Dr. John Sullivan, who's currently a clinical sports psychologist for Providence College and the University of Rhode Island. And like I said, consults with the NFL and the NFL office itself on mental health and behavioral health uh, issues. And we've got a lot and a lot of stuff to talk about. So Dr. John Sullivan, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. And I enjoyed listening to your intro. The uh, book, The Brain Always Wins, also uh, a portion of all sales go back to veterans worldwide in the United States. It's lone survivors. So when you're talking about burpees for vets, you got me and I was sitting on the edge of my seat. And you're absolutely right about, you know, the tragedy of war is that uh, it, it degrades brain health. And, and every day uh, we should be thinking about what we do is based upon the freedom that they provide and uh, we need to be looking out for our veterans. That's for sure. So I'm so glad you did that. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> well, doing that's that. Wonderful. Yeah, I agree with you. We we all agree, and we just need a way to engage. You know, for those of us who are physically oriented athletes and warriors, you know, we we can always do burpees. You know, that's why I chose that. <laughs> yes. There's more excuses, right? I don't care how yeah. fast or how good they look, as long as you're not going to hurt yourself, you can just crank them out. Yeah, and, uh, fantastic. You know, and that's a great place to start because, you know, you, you've certainly done a lot of work with the NFL and TBI has become a huge issue now. And it's, thankfully, they're finally taking a look at it. Well, the SEALs, as you know, are now baselining uh, all their warriors. So they're going to do an, uh, either an MRI or some sort of quig test to baseline their their brains so that they can start to track, you know, what what's happening with TBI. And so even just going to the range and shooting some rounds, you know, you're, you're basically traumatizing your brain. And so they finally are getting smart about this. And so a lot of that has to do with the work that, you know, you and others in the field have done to really expose uh, people to the issues of, you know, TBI and brain injury and, and how it can be healed, right? How it can be healed. So yeah. There is a cross germination there, no doubt. That I think uh, I think often when when I'm talking to people in both environment, sport, and and military or elite military or even law enforcement and firefighter, that there are universals, but not everything that works at the elite military crosses over into sport. I think that's a right. bit bit of a misnomer. But I am I am agreeing with you that that absolutely health is the foundation of human performance, and one environment can influence another to kind of let's start looking there. You know, right. and you're absolutely right that we. We think of concussion as an end state, but it's actually a process. Um, all training, a sport, and then the training that was done in elite military is trauma. Um, it just depends. Is it a big T or a little T? And if you're not measuring, you don't know when to pull back and allow that person to recover and then adapt or get stronger, get better. And I agree with you. Anytime they can put an objective a way of looking at what is really happening, then we're getting closer to allowing that person to be more resilient every day because we're right. giving them choices. Right. Yeah. And there is a fine line between healing or maybe I should say a, like a progression between healing and optimization. So a lot of clients I imagine you go into and they're like, Hey, you know, John, Dr. John, I want to optimize my brain's health. And you do an MRI and you're like, you know what, that's all fine and good, but you, you have some TBI that we got to basically heal from. Is that, is that the case where, you know, you've, 
you focus on re, you know healing and recovery before optimization, or are they all the same thing to you? Well, I, I, there there is some pieces to that you're describing. It is a process, and your assessment drives what you do with the intervention. So, and I'm always big on let's look at the strengths. You know, we have the most sophisticated survival system in the known universe. We're not the strongest animals. We're not the fastest. Mm -hmm. But what has allowed us to adapt and be at the top of that food chain is our human brain. So I'm, I'm bigger on looking, you know, let's look objectively and let's get the person's experience, but let's look at how we can capitalize on the things that they already have that they do well, mm -hmm. then start to put a training program together. And that's a familiar language for most in the environment of mm -hmm. elite military or or, or you know, you know, services of that nature, and then sport, because that's what it is. We often grow up with myths about how physical training works, but it's really pushing to a point of not survival, but it's pushing to a point of proper stimulation. Then it is where you rest, is where it comes together, and that's a total flip for our culture. Right. Um, we don't think that way at all. I did not grow up in sport that way. And probably the leaders of it are the elite military now. And then Australia, New Zealand, they don't have the numbers. They have to develop athletes. So they can't break them. And you can break anybody. Yeah. Right. So we it all, is. It's looking at a training program. We always said that SEALs or any spec ops can't be mass produced. And, and yet for many years, we just we just went hard, hard, hard. And broke people. And that's why I said that it's nice to see kind of a, a much more balanced and integrative approach coming to training. So you're talking about training your brain kind of like you would any other muscle in your body, right? I mean, that, that you, you stress it out. And then after that stretch, you've got to figure out how to recover it or else you're going to push it to a breaking point. Yes. I mean, that's, that's one way to put it in that metaphor is fitting, but also it's a metaphor that, that sometimes we don't learn. Like when you're training, everything is centrally derived, meaning the brain. So if there's a physical injury, that's a brain injury because mm. we're designed to be safe. And so the last thing to heal, say if someone's got an ACL, MCL, we even just have a, a, you know, a, a more manageable hamstring pull, the brain has now been put into a state where it's not safe. It's been put into survival mode. Mm. So the last thing to heal is emotions. You have to know you're ready. Um, and emotions run the show in sport and life. And we don't, we're not taught that either. Um, are you, that is our first indicator. Do you in safety? It sounds like you include both the subjective sense of mind, meaning, you know, feeling confident, feeling secure, you know, survival, those times, as well as the physiological aspects of the brain's, you know, functioning. Are, are you, do you conflate those or do you separate those two and look at them separately? Oh, it's a great question, Mark. It's actually separate. What we're learned is to, to brain and mind mean the same thing. Yep. To be quite honest to your listeners, we don't know what the mind is. Mm -hmm. The best we know, and we have teams around the world that are looking at human consciousness, but, and I don't think we're going to move too far afield from what we know now. What we know at this point in time is that our ability to have self-talk, our internal dialogue, mm -hmm. our consciousness came from the last third of our brain growing, which is the part right behind our forehead, the prefrontal cortex. Right. That allowed us to be able to have more alert safety systems. Mm -hmm. So when we're conscious of an emotion or conscious of pain, it allows us to pause, redirect, so we can move towards safety and then resilience and adaptation. And, and that's really where we're at. And we've actually conflated consciousness 
to, to be a part of the performance realm in ways that it is not. And in fact, you've probably experienced that. I have many of your listeners have when we're at our best in a performance and that can be sport related, military related, business related. You could experience it as a parent mm-hmm. is that we our brain is very efficient mm-hmm. and there's not much thinking going on. We just see and do. It comes down to pattern recognition. See, emotions are just signals about either our central nervous system. Our brain is functioning at a high level or that it's giving us some information about how to change tactics or to create self-care. That's all it is. That's the best we know at this point in time. But what we tell people, you know, what most people are brought up to, you just got to think positively. That's not true at all. That's absolutely not true. That's completely false because emotions come first before thoughts. Right. Yeah, that's something that we talk about, you know, where the, where the body leads, the mind follows and the body experiences emotions through sensations. And then the, then the mind or, you know, brain, but the, I'll say the mind um, uh, will, through this executive function, which, you, you know, you said is lodged in the neocortex, will associate some sort of belief or thought to that emotion, right, or to that experience, so I agree with that. That's fascinating. So what you're, what I love what you're saying though, is that it also essentially it all comes down to the mind because the mind is the central governing, you know, executive agent of all that we know and do and experience. And so if you stub your toe, you're saying that's a brain injury. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Because the only reason why you will know you're safe is the brain is able to uh, pattern recognize that you are. I mean, I'll give you an example. Right. It's and, not like and, your and this toe, toe says, "Hey, I stubbed my toe." <laughs> oh no, 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 no! Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was actually discovered many different ways, but th- this is one of the I think unique stories that that uh, allowed people to kind of see. Wait a minute, we got more here than we're, we're really paying attention to. In the 1970s, there was a worldwide. Uh, really kind of among different enclaves, uh, a, a development of some of the least, uh, the most elite fighter jets in the world. And so there was an enclave in, in the U.S. that was working on it. And there was an enclave in the U.K. And the U.K. had, just, had really challenged themselves. And their test pilots were noticing that, it, that they had developed a really intricate way of, you know, command and control of your weapon systems and then the fighter jet itself. And they were seeing they were getting overwhelmed with with some of the process. So they decided, uh, because one of the engineers had had a colleague was really working with EEG, basically looking at the small little millivolts of electricity that move across our brain that allow us to, again, communicate throughout the rest of our system. They said, well, what if we put some EEG sensors, some brain sensors in the helmet and allow and get the fighter pilot just to pilot the plane and allow their experience of see and do to command the weapon systems. Mm. And what they discovered is consciousness is about 350 milliseconds or more behind what the brain has already figured Mm -hmm. out. So they were firing their weapon systems without any conscious thought. They had to get used to it, but they trusted it. And so we know this. The brain was firing the weapon, and then they were able to form the thought around yes. needing to fire weapon yes. 300 milliseconds later. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Yeah. The pattern recognition is there and that's what we do with high level performance in any walk of life is we have to be emotionally calm. Um, you know, energy, energy has to be ready and available. And because we've worked through processes and, and we understand the patterns, we just see and do. Right. Um, and then in, unfortunately, consciousness about thinking about thinking during performance is getting truly conflated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see, still see 
people in the field who may call themselves sports psychologists, but that don't have the proper background tell them, no, you just need to think more about that situation when a mistake happens. No, you don't You need to get calm. You need to get refocused. Yep. And recentered. Yeah. That, I mean, that resonates so well with me as a Navy SEAL. And, you know, we would call that instinctual or intuitive, intuitive action. The reality is it's just your brain reacting to a pattern that, you know, it's, it's used to, you know, and that's where training and repetition mm-hmm. is so important for an athlete or a warrior, right? So you can grease the groove of the, of the right pattern. Is that correct? And so any pattern or anything out that is an outlier is going to send a signal that, Hey, something's, you know, something's up. Absolutely. And that's where training is important. I think where the military, I think, does a little bit better than sports, although I'm sure there are examples of equivalency or examples of equally bad. However, I think when things are life and death, we get a lot more specific. That's been my experience working in elite military, law enforcement and firefighter. When it's life and death, and I've worked with surgeons and pilots as well, when it's life and death, we should be more specific. Mm -hmm. And so, but in sport, they train for perfection. But the problem is that is there's a number of factors that really undo really being able to see and do in a live situation. Burnout, you're burning the person out, and rest and recovery is where you stimulate and where you, you solidify the stimulation of training. And if they're burned out, they're never getting enough mm-hmm. recovery. Secondly, the brain hates perfection. It actually induces anxiety. And so what you may be training in that situation is how not to react or learning sequences that are not applicable to the situation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you also can just not stimulate in a way that's situationally accurate. Where I think when you look at surgeons, pilots, elite military, firefighters, police officers, although there needs to be more training there, I, I've seen some statistics on that, but you know, they're put into situations where you want to stimulate that situation, but not overtrain. Because you know the first rule of war is your first rule of war is your plan will not survive first contact with the enemy. So you must train variability and the ability to be flexible. No, I couldn't agree more. The enemy and the environment has a say, or your opponents have a say in the outcome. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and so training to win means that you have an ideal – perfect end state that you're, you're seeking. Whereas with the SEALs, we're trained for mission accomplishment and we're flexible in how that, how that occurs. You know what I mean? We've got a broad vision of what, you know, the mission parameters look like, but there is no perfect solution ever. Right. And it can actually be a pretty messy solution (laughs) oftentimes. Yes. And we're in sport often the cases, and I think we put our coaches sometimes in a fail-fail scenario in the sense they they have the expectancy of being leaders that have all the answers and nobody does. In fact, most problems are due to lack of knowledge and you're always going to be behind the curve on that one. But they're put in a position where they are, uh, and some believe it, most don't, but they're put into a position that my plan will be perfect. And with perfect execution, we then will have command and control with yet what everything I just said is an illusion. Command and control is right. an illusion. Uh, plans have to be flexible. And, and so in, in the same way, um, I think there's growth there from sport to learn from, from the military, which ironically is where all sport came from. It's uh, just training grounds for the military. Right. Hey folks, Mark here. Listen up, I've got a secret weapon for you to make your working out and training more efficient and to get better results and faster. 
It's called the Halo Sport, and I love this tool. Simply put, training with a Halo Sport allows you to develop your muscle memory faster. The headset applies electrostimulation to your brain's motor cortex to induce a temporary state of hyperlearning. How cool is that? That means you're going to get better results faster from anything that you do where you need to learn by moving, such as your Silfit Wad, martial arts training, yoga, Tai Chi, or even running. Now, I interviewed Halo's CEO, Dr. Daniel Chow, a while back, and I was really impressed by his team and this underlying technology, the science of transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, which has over 15 years of scientific and military research behind it. I now personally use Halo Sport for many of my high-intensity wads and when I do my Tai Chi training where I'm trying to learn some new form. When I train my movements with the Halo Sport, I do learn faster and I get more precision and I feel I can perform more aggressively. Halo Sport's already being used extensively in the military special operations communities. And from my SEAL friends, I've heard that they get great results. It's also used by many pro athletes, Olympians, and thousands of lifelong athletes just like you and I. So in my mind, Halo Sport is the ideal training tool for those like you who want to exceed your training goals. To learn more about the Halo Sport, go to haloneuro.com. That's H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And you can use the code UNBEATABLEMIND, all one word, UNBEATABLEMIND at checkout to get this awesome product for $475, which is $275 off of the retail price. Again, haloneuro.com. Use the code UNBEATABLEMIND. You won't be disappointed. This is a great tool. All right, let's get back to the show. Hoo-ya. You know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the people listening to this are athletes and warriors, but also executives. And, you know, what I found over the last few years, and one of the reasons my book, The Way the Steel, has been so relevant is that, you know, all of these principles for how, you know, to train, training and focus and mission accomplishment and brain health and everything is, is so relevant for pretty much anyone trying to perform in the business world as well, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely relevant. And and they've learned the same myths that you and I grew up in, uh, whether it be in sport or other avenues, that you know it's just built on mental toughness mm-hmm. and grit, which are both fraudulent sciences. Grit especially, there is mm-hmm. no science. And mental toughness has been around since the 80s, and there's little to no science. So they grow up with these myths that performance is muscle memory. Mem- muscles don't mm-hmm. have memory. They don't. It is centrally derived. So, and we're all at a disadvantage. We don't learn much about our brain. But, you know, primarily it's a cultural thing, but it's also very good at what it does. So we can let it assume into the background and assume it's going to figure it out. Yeah, in a lot of ways it does because it's a survival mechanism. But you're right. Even being a corporate athlete, there are directed things you can be doing to enhance your performance day in and day out because it's a training regime no different than sport. For instance, in sport and in the United States, we're some of the worst sleepers in the world. We sleep on average about five hours. But with, with sleep being your number one performance enhancer, I mean, we can go longer without food and water than can, can without sleep. There are individual differences, but you know, most people who say, well, I can get by by five, they're functional, but they're not optimal. 
And when you test their abilities, cognitive abilities, physical abilities, you can see their vulnerabilities. They can see their vulnerabilities, and often they're, they're shown that. But they're showing up to work, generally, most Americans, functionally about the same as being right. intoxicated. Right. Yeah, we've, we've, Due to we've done a podcast with uh, Doc Parsley, who's you know a Navy SEAL who studies sleep in the SEALs, and he, he found out that you know because the SEALs are so sleep-deprived that they had the – you know, the hormonal uh, balance of like a 13 year old girl, you know, <laughs> testosterone levels were way down, estrogen way mm-hmm. up. And, you know, they're working out like madmen the first thing in the morning for a couple hours because that's how they rebalance themselves to try to perform. But he said that the long term degradation of performance and health is, is horrific. And so there's a big push to try to get that education into the seals. But I think uh, there's a lot of people out there now in the neurohacking community who are talking about sleep and it's important. Uh, so I don't think we need to dive into that one too much, but I, what are like, what are the other key areas from a standpoint of training that an individual can, you know, begin to take control of? I, I noticed in your book, you've got a, um, something called process. It's an acronym. Is that a good place to kind of dig into training for successful brain health? Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and really the, the term process is kind of an acronym and we'll, and I'll break it down, but it really came from, you know, the scientific evidence of what, what, if we're going to look at brain health, what has the most power? And ironically, looking at it, and it was really my co-author as we were gathering the data and the, the meta-analyses, you know, taking stock of what science says about this area. It, it, it spelled that word. They're like, well, that's kind of fitting since everything is a process. Everyone likes things to be events, mm-hmm. but nothing is. And and when you look at the word process, the P is physical activity. And 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 again, although your listeners may be above the curve in the sense of being more physically active, most people are not. And and when we look at brain health, unless we're moving, because we were designed to move about twelve miles a day. Uh, and most people do not move that, let alone, you know, three miles a day, that it, because it creates a process of neurogenesis, neural growth, by bringing blood flow to the brain, you're, you're creating, like you were saying earlier, a balance, a balance of neurotransmitters that gets there, a balance of fuel, a balance of vitamins and minerals between mm-hmm. the gut and the brain. So physical activity is, is again, exercise is, right. is medicine. It just has to be dosed right. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, if we're not doing it all, that's not a good dose. And then January one, <laughs> when everyone goes to the gym and buries themselves and then doesn't go back, yeah, that's yeah. not a good dose. You know, another either. thing about physical movement that is not really talked about much is, um, the neuroplastic effect of moving in new ways and learning new skills. And that's why yeah. like when you, when a Navy SEAL, yeah, he's exercising, but he's also, you know, running and gunning and doing obstacle courses and learning how to, you know, swim long distances in the ocean and ruck and run and, you know, and then all the different skills like of CrossFit and seal fit and whatnot. And they're always learning new things, always trying to perfect new skills, you know, and I've been practicing Tai Chi and Qigong and those type men, there's a lifetime of movement skills you could learn in those. And it all has this wonderful neuroplastic effect at expanding your brain's ability to learn, you know, and grow. And I would agree with that. And I would even add to that level of research. There is a really, really good uh, a band of research coming out that, you know, going back to kind of more traditional sports, but even those people who aren't involved in sport, if they were athletes or they're starting to work out, we often mimic what they're doing. 
And as we were talking about earlier, they'll often do motor patterns mm-hmm. or movement patterns that shorten their lifespan, mm-hmm. one, burnout, or, or, or joints. Such as monostructural running, and that's the only thing you have to do. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you'll see adaptation with that. Why the hamstrings get shorter because there's no need for them. But however, uh, you know, it, with long distance running, when you can create more health in the system by flexibility in there, then it will adaptate to, you can see performance and health decrements. But the other piece is it cuts mm. down creativity. So for instance, you know, when you look at, at speed skating, uh, short, tech, uh, short track speed skating, it's very difficult to mm. move around people. But it's even more difficult when you don't play with the idea of different ways to get around them. So there's some research like when you give athletes the opportunity to be creative, they can develop other decision strategies and motor patterns that they can time and anticipate off. No different going back to your your everyday, you know, your listener who may be working out is learning how to move their workout in a, in a particular way to try new things does create more neural growth and neuroplasticity. Absolutely. One of my sponsors yeah. is a company called Halo and they've got a something called the Halo Neuro, which is a, a, a e-stim device that stimulates the motor, supposedly the motor cortex, the motor region of your brain, the brain, region of your brain that affects or is most associated with movement. Have you had any experience with um, this type of uh, mental stimulation for movement, for improving movement? Well, I can talk about the research. Actually, one of the things that I'm involved with uh, is I work, um, I'm a visiting professor at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia, as well as the Australian Institute of Sport in, in their arm, Queensland Academy of Sport. And we have a living document of everything that's out there technology-wise that makes claims in sport. Is it safe? Is it valid? Does it do anything? So transcranial direct stimulation, which Halo fits underneath as, as a technology, uh, you know, because there are many technologies in that space, it, it, it it falls into a unique place. There is clinical mm-hmm. evidence, but we're far away from applying it in a in a personal uh, technology sort of realm. So transcranial direct stimulation in, done in the lab, we've seen some uh, really interesting evidence that says, okay, maybe this is going to be ready for prime time sometime soon. But most of the consumer things that are out there because they are not falling into, they decided not to apply for an FDA mm-hmm. device. So if you're an FDA device, you're a medical device. You you got to prove safety. You got to prove this works in all the scenarios that right. you're saying X works. And they're not um, they're not ready for prime time. Their claims. Um, I, I live by the rule that extraordinary claims require <laughs> extraordinary cool. evidence. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's mostly it. anecdotal. I mean, they've got an a, a NFL team using it. There are a bunch yes. of seals using it. Uh, I've used it and experienced the benefits. But I see what you're saying. You know, the, from a claim standpoint, they've got. You know, they can't market uh, beyond. Hey, these guys are using it, and they say it. They say it's working. <laughs> Yeah, they're working off the idea, the illusion of diffusion, the, the mistaken belief that there's growing enthusiasm about it. So the trend provides some, some, some durable quality. And, and then I would say it's even going further than that. You know, anecdotal evidence yeah. is the lowest form of evidence. You, you know, it, it, it and, th- and this is a sincere problem in, in the area of how fast technology is moving. Now, some of this is very helpful. I'm not against technology. Uh, we survived the industrial age. We don't allow kids to work third shift in dangerous environments, let alone work third shift. Um, and I think we'll adapt, but they're able to just make claims 
and they're not thinking about the harm that can be relegated. Um, uh, plural antidote, antidote or anecdotal information is not evidence. So if I get three people that say it worked for me, that just drives hypotheses like, hey, this might be interesting to research, see what's happening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's happening. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty interesting. So let's talk about the process again, P-R-O-C-E. So the R, I imagine, sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a guess here, stands for recovery. Yes, rest and recovery. And again, as we talked about stimulation with physical activity, you know, it's nothing without the rest and recovery. Something that as a culture, we're not, we're, we're getting up to speed, but generally speaking, uh, people don't do well. We don't do this well in our society. Rest is the reduction of energy. Recovery is allowing ourselves to be in a situation in which, you know, growth mm-hmm. can happen. And so teaching people you know, just how to take breaks throughout a day. And, and, and organizations are doing this now, like Google, like Verizon. We're seeing major corporations paying people mm-hmm. to slow down, to rejuvenate. Because what does it do? It enhances their creativity, their time on task, mm-hmm. their focus. And then, God forbid, someone experienced joy on the job. Um, and, and when you experience joy in the job, right. you're, you're do you more you put productive. sleep in this category of rest and recovery, or is that a, its own category? Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it falls into that, along with naps. Uh, another thing that many uh, throughout the world, uh, again, are kind of trained out of because people will label them as being lazy. When, when we look at blue zones in the world, blue zones are those areas of the world where people have a higher quality of life and live longer and have a higher health status. Mm-hmm. They take naps. Yeah, they're walking us. 12 miles a day uphill, so, carrying water, and then they take a nap. <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? You're like, hey, that was hard, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think intuitively we, we see people do that, but again, it, it kind of gets worked out. Like someone may decide at their lunch hour to split if they get a lunch hour. Half I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat and then the other half I'm going to take a nap. But if others see it, they can be hazed in a way that this is this is not showing their yeah. commitment when actually it shows that they're taking care of health, the foundation for performance, and they're going to be much better. There's even research to show that people that do that in heavy industry where you have to move around a factory, use heavy uh, you know, equipment, mm-hmm. there's less accidents. There's less, there's yeah, less injuries. So, Yeah, we, we recommend um, people do these what we call spot drills. And some of the spot drills are movement. Some of them are you know, like cognitive modification or something like that. But a lot of them really just are stress management for recovery, like box breathing or, you know, just pausing and doing 10 forward bends, you know, those are really killer um, for killer in a good way (laughs) for just um, resetting your, your nervous system and recovering, you know, from, you know, let's say a, a 50 minute to an hour, like deep work session. Yeah, what you just touched upon is probably the second uh, most powerful, and and we don't teach this, and we should be teaching it to our kids. Many kids now taking standardized tests feel pressure that you and I may never have in the sense of, uh, you know, early academics driving. And then also many, many of us have experienced drawing blanks on tests or even normal rates of test anxiety is, is teaching diaphragmatic breathing. I mean, most per- people breathe between nine and 24 breaths per minute, but we know from a research standpoint and evolutionary standpoint, when you can drop under six breaths per minute, you're shifting and having control and management over your autonomic nervous system. So I can go from fight or flight or full on effortful to a recovery status and then getting into a point where I'm getting more towards resiliency and then leading on to adaption. And these are simple things we should, I mean, in your environment, Mm -hmm. you would call it tactical breathing. 
you know, and we, and, and I've worked with biathletes in the winter games as well as, you know, uh, those in, in the similar apparatus in summer with pistol shooting and rifle shooting, you know, um, but it works with anything. I would have my linemen in between each down mm-hmm. take diaphragmatic breaths and we could see that they are recovering micro cycles of recovery. And no one does that in sport. No one thinks about that. It's recovery happens at halftime or what you do after a game. Right. No, no we're, we're, we're wired for recovery. To it's just recovery is, is, is um, the, the yin to the yang of the movement, right? And it can happen in almost real time <laughs> just by pausing and taking that breath and, you know, um, drawing energy in, you know. So we do that. We teach that as well at Seal Fit, you know. When you, you know, if you're doing 10 kettlebells, like do those 10 things, set the kettlebell down, recover, right? Three breaths, boom, then pick it up again and go. But that's not generally about how we, you know. Again, we're we're all taught about the the, the false the false narrative uh, about mental toughness and grit. It's about powering through when it's actually about it's about a process, and we naturally do it when we inhale. That stress, blood pressure goes up. That's good, bringing blood to the brain, glucose, vitamins, minerals, neurotransmitters. When we exhale, that's the break. That's when we slow down. That's when we get coherent. That's when we become stable. And so that that's really important to be teaching. And this is a really evolutionary advantage. I, I was involved. Um, I got to peek my head into some research that was being done. I lived part time in Newport, Rhode Island, part time in D.C. And at the National Zoo, they were which is owned by the Smithsonian. Now they were doing research with primates, our closest cousins, gorillas, orangutans, bonobos, chimpanzees. And they were doing a study looking at does their brain fire wire reacts the same way it does with us when we laugh, when we, when we feel a sense of laughter and humor. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know who these research assistants were that said, I'm going to tickle a gorilla. Um, but uh, these <laughs> were brave men joke. and women. <laughs> I got to see it. These were brave. young. I didn't know if it was a funnel to Navy SEAL training. I don't know. But it was <laughs> That's a good one. What's, what's the next evolution instructor? We got to go tickle that gorilla. <laughs> Consider they're more powerful than us by far, easily. Yeah. Um, but what they discovered was is something they weren't looking for. That if you tickle primates, and we've all gotten to a point where we've almost passed out, <laughs> where we catch our breath, we've almost wet ourselves. Don't, don't they say they that don't have is kind of abusive? I mean, jeez. actually they do like it but this is the unique difference between them they pass out oh they do interesting so we have the evolutionary process of performance of catching our breath our breath control is innate only to us and so that's why i said we should be teaching this at a very young age because it's a performance enhancer and health enhancer and they discover that by accident (laughs) they didn't realize that was going to happen that's fascinating. Yeah, I agree with you. Breath control and um, diaphragmatic breathing is slowing down. I, I've often wondered like what it is physiologically about slowing down the breath that causes uh, such health benefits, right? Has there been any research on that? Like why, you know, we know that turtles breathe like once every two minutes and they live for 150 years. I don't know if there's any correlation between turtles and humans, but that's just an interesting data point. But um, through the yoga community, because I've studied yoga and taught it, you know, and I got like thousand hours of certifications in it. And, uh, you know, there's a like a very strong belief passed down through many, many, many years in the yoga community that if you slow your breathing down to, like you said, below six breaths, you know, some of these people are are doing like one breath every 
two to three minutes uh, that has an enormous effect on your longevity. I right? can really affect your health and longevity. Is there any research? Yeah, there's two lines of research. I think you're bringing up a, a very valid point. I mean, I think many of your listeners have either done some, you know, either yoga or the next piece I'll talk about is, is meditation. They've done these pieces and they've probably wondered these things or experienced some of these things. So, so many times when people think about the brain, they think about the wrinkly part on the top, the neocortex, which you mentioned earlier, which has to do with our higher functionings. But what we don't learn and what gets conflated is if that thing works on its own, Mm. it doesn't, it, it really, a lot of the research that has to do with what makes us great performers, longevity, health has to do with the lower, most basic areas of the brain through evolution, Mm. amphibian part of the brain, midbrain, temporal brain, because it grew over millions of years. Mm -hmm. So that base brain is uh, an area near the brainstem called the uh, pons and the uh, medulla. And there's an area to be called the pre-bot or the pre-bot C, and that has to do with our respiration rate, including in there's blinking, breathing, those types of things. But we have a bridge. So breathing's a bridge to the basic level of the brain to enhance coordination of the top level of the brain. Mm -hmm. Then it helps to coordinate heart and then the enteric nervous system or our gut where there's more neurology in our brain. So the research, and you brought up turtles. And I, and I think you were smart to say what you said, but we always underestimate the learning we have from other animals. Not everything crosses over, but there's quite a bit. And, and, and in fact, there's quite a bit of research that shows, yes, that control does assist our resiliency and our overall health. Mm-hmm. And where do we get that from? We get it from disease modeling when people don't have very good control because they have heart disease mm-hmm. or they have heart arrhythmias or they're real sensitive to stress by experiences of repetitive trauma. And so, yes, we do see that. That control does make a difference. And what I would call that, and we talk about it in the book, uh, Chris Parker and I, is wisdom of the village. Mm-hmm. And through 21st century science, we're starting to be able to uncover and honor these practices. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I termed it meditation. Mindfulness is not a serving term because even the Dalai Lama said he's frustrated by it turning into Buddhist business. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness doesn't really have a true definition. Mm-hmm. And in science, that's not helpful. It means nothing and everything. Mm-hmm. Where meditation has a more formal definition and we can, uh, uh, we've extrapolated much more useful knowledge from that area. And then also yoga. Mm-hmm. So yes, slowing down. We don't slow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is a longevity piece to that. No yes. Now I know you appreciate some soreness brought on by getting busy with a bruising workout, but doesn't it suck when excessive soreness throws us off our game, causing us to back down on our effort or even erasing those hard won gains? That is why building recovery into our training plan is so important. Now, one way that I do that is with a simple to use recovery and healing tool called PowerDot. PowerDot is an electrical muscle stimulation device that forces type 2 muscle contractions, allowing you to increase muscle performance, speed up recovery, and also find a deeper mind-body connection. I've used complicated stim devices in the past to heal from my back injuries, but those were clumsy devices and not very effective to use for everyday use. The PowerDot, however, is a game changer because of its simplicity and the control through a well-designed mobile app. It's portable and powerful, making it usable for daily recovery 
or as needed for excessive soreness and to ward off potential overtraining injuries. PowerDot puts professional-level physical therapy into your gritty hands, saving valuable time and money. Now, the PowerDot team loves us at SealFit and Unbeatable Mind, and they have a generous offer for us. You can get 25% off the device when you go to PowerDot.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-D-O-T.com. And use the code UNBEATABLEMIND, all one word, UNBEATABLEMIND, at the checkout. So again, receive 25% off of one of my favorite tools for achieving increased muscle performance and recovery by going to power.com and using that code UNBEATABLEMIND. And what's the O now in the process? Process really is optimal nutrition, which is really gut based, is brain based. Most of us don't. We we most of us eat so far away from food. We've returned back to hunters and gatherers. Most of the, if you remove most of the research, you remove processed food from grocery stores. You're left with only about ten percent, right? And that's real food. Mm-hmm. And and so we've returned to hunters and gatherers. When you go in a grocery store. You got to look at labels. If a fifth grader can't read it, it's not food. <laughs> and and so we've returned back to being hunters and gatherers. And and then that goes even further. Most of the research, uh, and there is good studies on this. Most medical textbooks and nutrition textbooks have to be rewritten. Mm-hmm. We've learned so much about the gut biota in the last ten years that when I'm working with elites, you know, nutrition is very individual. And so you have to do blood tests and then testing fecal matter mm-hmm. to understand. Because we eat for neurotransmission. We mm-hmm. only eat to make neurotransmitters. We don't even eat for, for taste and looks. Some of that's a little bit due to modern world and, and taste buds came into identifying poisons as we have evolved. Mm-hmm. But we really eat for neurotransmission, but none of us are taught that. Yes. And, I, I did a podcast with the founder of a company called Viome, V-I-O-M-E. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a fascinating discussion, and they've created a test, and I actually did it. I'm awaiting my results, actually, where you know they'll test your your biome, and it's kind of like a genome of the biome, and they'll tell you, okay, this is what your biome, all the little bugs down there, which crazy stat that like ninety ninety five percent of the genes in our body are the bugs in our biome, <laughs> mm-hmm. and what do the what do they want to eat and his point was that oftentimes we're eating the wrong things, not, and not just junk, of course, the junk from, you know, barcoded crud at the grocery store is just bad for us. But even if we had all the good stuff, you could still be eating the wrong good stuff, you know, that your body isn't necessarily inclined to, to need, right. Based upon your personal. No, that's Yeah, that's very accurate. Very accurate. I mean, that's why, you know, in the elites, I get the opportunity to work in a very personal level. You know, the, the, the the misnomer is even in elite military elite sport is that you train a team. No, you don't. You train a group of individuals. That's where the challenge starts. And with the optimal nutrition, it really does exactly as you described. It really needs to be prescribed down to the individual. Um, that's why even in the book, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, paleo diet's good. Paleo diet's not good. Mm. It depends upon the individual. Yeah. It could be fantastic for someone because nutrition and how we support our gut biome can be so individual. That can be a fantastic way of going about it. But for many, it may not be. It's in science. We don't eyeball things. Let's test it. Let's find out. And so we talk about that piece. Yeah, I think we're all, we're all looking forward to the day where you can, you know, prick your 
finger and and then have a um, you know a replicator create the ideal meal for you, <laughs> and it tastes good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But we talk about the latest science and how people can apply it. Some of this, some of the stuff is is again we're we're getting there. Uh, some of it's just for you know that elites may have access to. But what we talk about in that chapter is what everyone can be doing, mm-hmm. and then also try to demystify some of what's the major fuel for the brain. And in in you know our culture, it's it's often about focused on protein, where that's not the major fuel for the brain. You're creating more inflammation. Yeah. Yeah, it's fat and carbohydrates. You got to get the gl- got to get the glucose. If you don't get the glucose, uh, you're in trouble. What do you think about ketones and their ability to heal the brain and fuel the brain? Again, I, I go back to individual variants. Um, you really have to be testing down to the individual. Some of that science is still early on, mm-hmm. but none of us could say, "Wait a minute!" Without you know, with some proper testing and assessment, might this impact this individual on a, in a positive basis? Mm-hmm. There are going to be those, you know, um, but from a general statement, we're not there in the science yet, mm-hmm. but from a specific statement, you very much could be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I look at, you know, human health. We, is something we've not done well in, in, in the United States is it's an N of one. As a practitioner, it's the person sitting across from you, right. and you have to use the assessment and the science as a guidepost about what – because anything can be poison. It's just timing and dose. Right. And so you have to be working with the individual in front of you. So anyone yeah, – you know, that's say- Yeah, sorry about that. That's the beautiful thing about like your work and the availability of all this knowledge on the internet is those of us who are really, really care about our optimizing our performance and our health and our longevity – you know, we can become our own little test subjects, you know, and that's, uh, that's what I do. But then a lot of people listen to this, uh, podcast and others like it. And they're like, well, you know, if divine does it, it's gotta be good. And I think part of our message here is maybe, and maybe not, you know what I mean? Like, cause everyone's different, right? You know, no, I don't, and that's not a bad thing. I don't expect everyone to do 300 burpees a day and drink an uh, ample keto every morning, which is kind of my routine because that's, that works for me, but at least this year. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, there's I'll nothing wrong with what you said ever. there. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think there's anything wrong with what you just said there. You know, when we look, when I look at my, my work in the NFL and e- the English Premier League and, and, and elsewhere within the, the elite military and, and, and with firefighters and even police, like you, the research is, is things we do so we don't make fools out of ourselves, but we have to do it in a systematic way so we understand how it impacts us. Now, there are obviously things that fit in there like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Right. All the research consensus says don't. Everything right. else, as long as we're doing it in a way in which we can measure input and output, this is where we discover things. And, 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 and there are always specific groups where it'll work and others where it'll kind of work and others where it won't. You're, you're very right. You're very right. Yeah. Okay. So what about the C in process? What's the C? That's really cognitive training. And what we talk about in there is really what we talked about a bit ago is, is meditation. And mm-hmm. in that meditation is a unique thing, wisdom of the village, that actually allows us to get at three, three things, at least what we know now scientifically. It is a recovery exercise. Right. You think about the central activating point of meditation is breath rate control. Mm-hmm. It may not even be conscious control, but if you sit someone long enough, guess what happens? And you do it repeatedly, and it doesn't have to be every day, their breath rate will go under six breaths per minute. And then what happens? You get to a parasympathetic recovery state. 
Well, there is a cognitive component too, where we slow down our thoughts. Our brain is designed to think. That's what's allowed us to survive in some ways in the sense that it analyzes things, it, see, it sees things, it recognizes pattern recognition. But through the, the repetition of sitting, we learn ways to allow it to pass and to slow down. Very, very important. And then the other, the other piece of it is, again, we are working on attentional sequences. And that has to do with alerting and tracking. So very few, thing, very few things hit that many areas of the brain and, toward health. And right. so we talk about the research where it is now, where it might go, and then some technology that can assist with it because everyone gets frustrated in our culture now by meditation because we're designed to be distracted. We live in a, an economy of attention now and everything wants it. Like you said when we started, you thanked people for listening. Right. Yeah, there's a b- billion things, you know, getting worse that'll that'll take your attention. So it's becoming more and more important for all of us to just carve out deliberative time. I think I just created a new word there, but deliberate time, you know, to slow down and to meditate and to breathe and to, you know, do that. Whereas in the past, you know, that kind of happened, like you said, the wisdom of the family or the wisdom of the village was, hey, there's time where everyone took a nap. There was time where everyone sat quietly around and just looked at the fire, you know, like fire puja. And um, it doesn't really happen anymore. So we've got to create it ourselves. Yeah. And it's critical. And I love the other thing about meditation that you didn't mention, but it, it's it's tied to that attention. I forget the word you use, attention direction or something like that, right? Uh, attentional sequencing. So it's alerting. And we think of it as an event, but uh, it, it's actually a tripart process. It's it's alerting. Okay. So my right. attention is up to something to track. Then right. I can get to executive decision making or even right. executive tension. And yet we don't teach it that way. Uh, yet right. you're right. There was a culture that kind of instituted that. Sport doesn't necessarily do that, but this is an exercise that very right. much does that. This is a big part of our unbeatable mind training. In, when we get into our uh, meditative practices, we call it the witnessing process, which becomes, you know, giving people back the skill to become self-referential and to you use a term we also use, think about your thinking um, in a way that you're constantly able to assess the quality of one's thinking over a period of time and then to take corrective action on that, right? And so, that's powerful, right? Because you can then you can apply this to anything. You can apply this to to sleep, recovery, to performance, to conversation, relationing, you know, relating with other human beings, to you know, pretty much anything. But you got to slow down in order yeah. to speed back up again in that manner. And and we're living a culture currently. I mean, if we just take our technology, and again, I want to say to your listeners, I, I use a lot of technology, but you said it earlier, you know, you can't mass produce performance, but another really important rule of, of high performance, no matter where you are, is that nothing, you know, no hardware, no software, no technology trumps right. human beings. And so if we can't get back to a process that allows us to stabilize mm-hmm. Then, you know, in our technology currently, just the lights that it emits, the radio frequencies, it, it makes us unstable. It changes our chronobiology. It changes our brainwaves. If we don't get back to stable, then what we're doing is a pattern of work, work, work. 
And what happens with that is we break. We're not designed for that. Going back to the breath example I used before, inhale is stress, exhale out is relaxation. The exhale stabilizes us. So having these keystones of things to try, um, uh, like I talk about in the book of technology I use, I to be honest with your, your listeners, I'm on their advisory board now, but I used it for three years. I tested it that it was valid. I tested that it was safe. And, and I tested that people were learning faster how to meditate. And, and it's a device made by Interaxon out of Toronto called yeah, Muse. And it, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know it. Yeah, it gives you EEG. And what, what does everyone want to know when doing meditation? Am I doing it right? This allows you to yeah, see that. And the then bio, you're not a feedback uh, loop where you get, you get a little sound or birds chirping when your brain is in that optimal zone of meditation, right? Or the alpha zone or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's training biofeedback and neurofeedback. And, and again, a lot of people end up uh, using it as a reference point, but then obviously use it without the device. But, but again, that I, if this is a strong tool for health and performance, if, if this is going to be assisting and I, and I've seen that, then, then I know there are many traditionalists will say, well, that's not the journey. Well, I said, well, if this is that powerful, why would we hold sure. this? I mean, to honor the people that passed it down, we need to continue to proliferate ways in which people have access. But in cognitive training, yeah, technology, in my opinion, technology can, you know, a lot of people need technology as, as a little bit of a crutch. And if it gets them to do the work, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's not a replacement for the no, work. Though. No. I mean, that's why the whole hacking community sometimes bothered me because people are looking for an end around, you know, or some sort of shortcut. Technology is, is meant to kind of excel, either accelerate or enhance or get us to actually begin doing the work but the work is actually you doing something you know repetitively that's healthy over time you yeah know I mean? over as well said and i think the other piece that it assists with is we is data so when i can show when they can feel it and then you sh- you see the data that this is assisting you in health and performance then we now we have a self-determined individual because they're being intrinsically and extrinsically rewarded and so that helps as well right. a- another device we talk about is is spire it actually goes back to breath rate control. It's a small little device that sits right on your belt and it tethers with your smartphone and will can give you cues about when your breath rate goes into a state where you're stressed or can give you cues about how about a break? You know, how about we do some diaphragmatic breathing? I've found it very, very helpful for uh, working individuals who work in, in, you know, environments that are stressful or they have vicarious trauma or just training tactical breathing or high performance with a corporate athlete, like I should take a break right now. I've done 50, used the example before, 50 minutes of tough work. How do I reset myself for the next 15 minutes? Right. So it's, and it's actually, it's Spire. invisible. People don't see it. I've got to check in that. The spy, you got a, it's called a Spire, S-P-I-R-E. You got it. Yep. Okay. I'll look into that. Hmm. Great. So we've gone a long time, but I, I hate hanging chads and we still got three letters left in your process. The E, the S, and the S. Can we cover those uh, uh, in a high level manner? And we'll leave the secret sauce to, uh, to folks who, to buy your book and to take a look under the hood, so to speak. Yeah, I can absolutely touch on them uh, quickly. I mean, the next, the E is emotional management. And as uh, we, we, we touched on a little bit earlier, you know, emotions run the show in sport and life. It's our evolutionary way to really acknowledge our stability and then our need to move towards more resilience. Mm-hmm. It's our signaling that either everything's all right 
um, or we need to become or do activities that allow us to be more resilient. And in really what, what's in the chapter is talking about that reconnecting to understanding that emotions are not our enemies. Right. We're often, often taught to believe that, you know, that decision making has to be done more logically. There is never any important decision we ever make that emotions don't run the show. Mm-hmm. And the more important the decision, emotions run it. Gut instincts are real things. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that nerve that connects the brain the heart and the stomach, the vagus nerve, it wraps around the front and back of the stomach. And we know for every mammal, if you cut that nerve, they won't be able to decide, even if they've been through that scenario before or thousands of times. So reconnecting that our emotions are key to our decision-making and our resilience. Going back to your question, breath rate, longevity, why does breathwork connect to longevity? Because it connects to emotions mm-hmm. and we feel hundreds on average a day. And if we can't manage the, 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 the difficult ones, that really takes away from our health and our way and our way to performing better. And so we, uh, and then, and then the, the, the other S is socialization. We, we were, we are wired to be in groups and connected to others. And we actually know, Something you talked about earlier and mentioned, you know, when we think about longevity, people that live longer, that have better social connections, it has something to do with our brain health. Mm-hmm. We are not wired to be isolative. And in fact, it, our brain will downregulate mm-hmm. certain chemicals that have to do with uh, emotions or our ability to seek out uh, exciting things or variety They'll downregulate. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's some of the ills we see in our culture, and you probably can think about your family. I can. We at one point in time law, had lived on the same street, our whole family, mm. our whole family, generations. And that social support is really, really key. And as we've gotten more fragmented, we have to find it other ways. But brain health very much comes from connected culture or connected others. Um, and, and that's critical. And then the last one really looks at synergy, which we've kind of talked about, mm-hmm. that everyone has strengths they're building off of, but everyone's plan is going to look different. Anyone that tells you that they have a plan, whatever it is, and it's one size fits all, I'd start asking questions or walk in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Human variation is critically important and taken apart in any health or any performance environment. Has to be, has to be. Yeah, I agree with that. That's amazing. Okay. Wow. This has been fascinating. We, um, we could go on for hours here, uh, but um, we won't do that because everyone's busy and they want to get rocking and rolling and they've gotten so much out of this podcast. I think I have too. I mean, this has been fascinating. So keep up the great work. The, the title of your book is The Brain Always Wins. Um, you got that at Amazon and I'm sure and all over the place, but you also have a, the website. Um, what's the URL so we can get, uh, get them to the right place? www.thebrainalwayswins.com. Oh, that's pretty easy. Thebrainalwayswins.com. And are you available on uh, like Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and all that? Or do you stay clear of that stuff? (laughs) I I, uh, have have reduced my time on there due to its impact on all of our health. But obviously, it is a way for us to connect. And, you know, there's messaging. So you can find me on Instagram, The Brain Always Wins, on Twitter, uh, you know, at brain always wins. And then certainly, uh, on LinkedIn as well, you can find me. Terrific. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Dr. John Sullivan, thank you so much for your time, John. I really appreciate it, man. This has been, been quite enlightening. Very, very helpful. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys.
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.